Matthew 27. If you have a bookmark, you might need it today. We're going to come back to this passage several times, but we're going to look at some other passages as well. Today, the uh, songs really lined up well, I think, today with what we're going to be talking about, especially the third song that we sang. But uh, in, in my preparation for Easter, he came back to this story <clears throat> and sparked some different ideas and uh, was looking at a couple of different options out of this passage, but uh, we landed on this one. And this morning, I'd like to look at three sinners, and we are one of these three. And it's interesting, <laughs> this passage in Matthew 27, what we see here in some of the boldness of some and uh, some of the passiveness of others. Uh, and then we'll look at another passage to look at center number three. Um, three doors, right? Door number one. Uh, we'll look at, at three different kinds of sinners. And like I said, we are one of them. And uh, hopefully we're the third one. I'll give you that, that piece of advice before we get started. But uh, nonetheless, let's look at these today. Matthew 27, starting in verse number 19. The Bible says, When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with, this, with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. This is Pilate's wife talking to Pilate about Jesus. Verse 20, But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas uh, and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. We see two of the sinners in this passage. We'll look at the third, like I said, in a different passage in just a moment, but related to the same story. And as I was reading through the... Anytime I'm preparing for resurrection, I always read through the crucifixion. And, uh, and here we see this, this passage in Matthew, and it's given in other Gospels as well, slightly different accounts, but we see here Pilate standing before the people with Jesus here getting ready to make his decree of what would happen. His own wife says, don't have anything to do with this. And Pilate, uh, as the multitudes led by leaders, calling for the crucifixion of Christ, he asks a great question there in verse 23, why? Why? Why crucify Jesus? Why release Barabbas? Why choose this man? What has he done? And the people, their response in verse 25, His blood be on us. We'll take the blame. Not only us, but our children also. 
So this morning I want us to take a look at three different kinds of sinners and, uh, and then maybe we ask ourselves, which one are we? Lord, I pray for your help this morning as we look at this passage and the events surrounding the crucifixion. Lord, and we look at people, people who just days before the crucifixion were celebrating Jesus, were now chanting for his death. And Lord, we look at Pilate and the role that he played and the heart that he had. And God will also look at a third, but Lord, I pray that today you would help us. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us. God, I pray though that you would help us to see what we are. And God, I pray that as I present these passages that I would do it clearly and that I would do it correctly. And I ask for your help this morning and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to see first of all, uh, the first kind of sinner is the openly unrepentant sinner. The openly unrepentant sinner. And we see here in this passage in verse 25, the people, as Pilate says, I don't want any, any guilt on me for this. And he says at the end of verse 24, so or see ye to it. They said, we want Jesus crucified. And Pilate says, see ye to it. And the people said, not only will we do this, but we're happy to take on the blame. His blood be on us and on our children. The choice they were making was one they were unapologetic about. This is on us. We'll take the blame. We'll take the fall. Not only that, we're willing to throw our kids under the bus on this one too. It's interesting that there is a group of people in the world today that are openly willing to crucify Christ. They'll stand before anyone and say, I've got no problem with the decisions that I'm making. I'm choosing this and I am okay with it. When you look at the decisions that the world is making today and the the wickedness that is in our society, and you understand the people who sit there and willingly say, I'm okay with it. Blatantly open to it. People that will carry signs joking about the fact that they will burn in hell. They don't care. They're fine with the decision they're making. It reminds me of Satan, if you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 13, uh, where we read about the fall of Satan. It reminds me of the attitude that he had, uh, then called Lucifer, and how he responded to God. Uh, in Isaiah 13, starting in verse number 12. It says, I will make a man more precious than fine gold, even a man than the golden wedge of Ophir. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong... No, that is right. Okay, sorry. Uh, Therefore, I will shake the heavens and the earth and shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts. Am I in the wrong chapter? What am I looking at here? That's not what I wanted. I apologize. Isaiah 13, oh my goodness, 14, thank you, it is there, Isaiah 14, one chapter over, Um, verse 12, there we go, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down the ground, to the ground, which didst weaken the nations, for thou hast said, Lucifer said, in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. 
I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon uh, the, the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Satan, in his great pride, decided that he was going to be better than God. He chose that his path was going to be different than God's path. That he knew better. That he liked it more. That he could, uh, he believed that he could choose his own path. The result is, is he did choose his own path, but it wasn't the one that he planned out. Pride filled Lucifer, and, and not only him, uh, many angels went with him. And he sat here and he made a decision boldly and blatantly against God. And the result is verse 15. He should be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. And each of these sinners that we're looking at, we're going to look at the results of their decisions. And Satan here is the leader of the blatantly unrepentant. And he sits here and he says, I will do this and I will do that. And all of it is contrary to what God said. All of it is against what God said. But he says, this is the choice that I make. And the result is brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. The children of Israel as well had a moment where they chose blatant unrepentance. Would you turn with me to Exodus 32? Hopefully that one's right. Exodus 32. Moses goes up to the mountain. Joshua goes halfway with him. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. He's gone longer than the people thought he would be gone. And they start to stir and they start to get anxious and they begin to be led by the mob. If you look in verse number 19, Exodus 32, verse number 19, And it came to pass as soon as he, that's Moses, came nigh unto the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hand, and he brake them beneath the mount. And he took the calf which they made and, uh, and burnt it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and he strawed it upon the water, and made the children of Israel drink of it. I want you to realize that wasn't a, um, uh, an action that happened in a second. It took a little bit of time to melt it down to ground it into powder, to get it into the water. Verse 21, And Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief. For they said unto me, Make us gods which shall go before us. For as, uh, as for this Moses the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. 
So they gave it me, and I ca- that uh, then I cast into the fire, and there came <laughs> out this calf. Again, not not really how it works, <clears throat> but we see here the people delivered out of Egypt by God, crossed the Red Sea at God's great miraculous hand, sit. Uh, here in the wilderness, impatient, because Moses was gone for a long time. He said, we don't know what happened to him. Maybe he's dead. So Aaron, make us a new God. The kind that we saw in Egypt. And Aaron did. He made this calf, this golden calf, and the people celebrated it. They were dancing. The Bible says there was immorality. There was uh, great wickedness with this. And they were dancing and they were celebrating this new lowercase g God that Aaron made for them. It's amazing how blatant the people were. But this wasn't the end. Verse 25, And when Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked under their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. So they not only were impatient, not only wanted to make an idol, not only celebrated that idol in wickedness amongst not only worshiping something other than God, but in other ways as well. Moses stood before them and he said, uh, amongst, I would assume, other thoughts, who is on the Lord's side? Come over here. And there still were people who stood openly unrepentant against God. What's the result? Verse 27, And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of, Israel, of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. And the result of the unrepentant is always the same. It's destruction. We see it with Lucifer. We see it with the children of Israel. And we see it still to this day. The openly rebellious, the openly unrepentant, the open, uh, openly sinning person, boldly sinning, the result is destruction. It leads to a very dangerous path. Now that doesn't tend to be what you find in church. That type of sinner is typically what you find in the lost world, the unsaved. The, the, those that we see in our society and in our world. That's more of what you're going to find outside of the church. But the second kind of sinner is typically more of what you'll find inside the church. 
And if you'll go back with me to Matthew 27, and we see it in verse number 24 with Pilate. He says there in verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail, or that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See to it. It's interesting here, I'll ask you because I believe you know the answer. Who is the one that can declare us innocent? It's Jesus. It's God. You can say you're innocent all you want. It doesn't make you innocent. And here Pilate, I believe, pictures a lot of Christians, and non-Christians too, but where he says, this guy is just, meaning he's, he, there's nothing... No guilt found in him. He said that multiple times. I can find no wrong in this man, Jesus. He should not be put to death. He should not be crucified. But you want him crucified. So I'm going to wash my hands of this. And now I'm innocent. Go and kill him. I call this sinner the willfully ignorant. The first kind is the openly unrepentant. The second kind is the willfully ignorant. We say, I don't know, or I don't understand, or I, I'm not responsible for, I'll turn my face, I'll turn my eyes so I don't see what happens. It's not on me. Always has an excuse. In Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve, and, and we've talked about this recently, and Eve took of the fruit and then she gave it to Adam and Adam took of the fruit and God comes and He approaches them and, and in Genesis 3 verse 12 it says, The man said, The woman which thou gavest me, she gave me the fruit. He puts it on Eve. And Eve says, The serpent made me. And God looks at Adam and Eve and, and they're trying to play innocent. It's not my fault. The woman made me do it. The serpent made me do it. And God says in Genesis 3, the results of their sin, and their, uh, even though they said it's not my fault, He says to the woman, Eve, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy, and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And to Adam he says, Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the day of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat of the, of the, field, uh, of her, of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground." And he says, therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man. Adam says, it's not my fault. 
I shouldn't be held responsible for it. Eve said, it's not my fault. I shouldn't be held responsible for it. That makes it okay, right? I'm innocent. And God says, no, that's not how it works. Oftentimes, the willfully ignorant person comes up with a different excuse for why they're not responsible for their sin. And one of the most popular excuses that we find in our world today is what we call generational sin. Well, my dad or my mom or my grandfather or my grandmother, for years and years and years, this sin has been in our family. Some psychiatrists will tell you that it's an excuse. Well, that child, poor child, they were doomed from the beginning. Their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents, they were all drunkards. So they were eventually going to be a drunkard as well. Well, that person, the reason why they're violent is because, well, uh, their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents were all violent as well. I don't mean to minimize the effects that a household and upbringing can cause on a young person especially. Definitely it is influential. And there are some influences, especially as children, that we just cannot avoid. But the Bible teaches in Exodus 20 how God looks at generational sin. It's a real thing. It's not, it's not made up. But in Exodus 20 in verse number 1, it says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down to thyself uh, to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Now listen to this part. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. He says he's visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. It's generational sin. It's being passed down from generation to generation. Idolatry and wickedness. Worshiping false gods instead of worshiping God. He says, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. You worship me. But in this phrase of the visiting the iniquity of fathers upon children of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, he also says that he shows mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. How long does generational sin exist? It exists until someone stops it. God does not look at someone, and I'm just using this as an example, there are all kinds of other things we can look at. But it's an easy example. God does not look at someone who is, is a drunk and, and say, well, because your dad was a drunk, 
and because your granddad was a drunk, and because your great-granddad was a drunk, I'm going to overlook your drunkenness. No, he says, I'm going to uh, uh, visit the iniquities of the Father, even though they've been passed down. I'm going to continue to visit them to the generation, to the generation, to the generation. I'm not going to punish the dad for the son's sin. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. You're responsible for yourself. You're responsible for your actions. And you say, well, but, you know, and, I, and I, listen, I'm a very fortunate person. I grew up in a very clean home uh, and, and a very good home and a very Christian home. I was not influenced by uh, negative things very often. I was not uh, tempted by things because they were never made available to me. All that kind of stuff. I get that I'm fortunate. But God does not look at your sin and say, well, because your dad had the same sin or because your mom had the same sin, I, I'm not going to visit this iniquity. I'm, not going, I'm just going to overlook your sin because your dad did it and your grandparents did it and so on and so forth. No, he's going to visit that iniquity. But he says there, I will show mercy to them that love me and keep my commandments. The generational sins can stop, but they've got to stop with you. Instead of making the excuse, well, it's, it's not my fault, it's dad's fault. It's not my fault, it's mom's fault. It's not my fault, it's my grandparents' fault. It's not my fault, it's society's fault. It's not my fault, it's so-and-so's fault. No, if you're sinning, it's on you. And Pilate says, well, I'm going to wash my hands of this. I'm innocent. <laughs> Trust me, Pilate was not innocent. And although I believe with all my heart that Jesus loved Pilate, as a matter of fact, Pilate was doing Christ's bidding. Because I needed a sacrifice. But Pilate is not innocent because he washed his hands. And he's not innocent because he said, I don't think he deserves this. It's all on you guys. No, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. But God will show mercy to them who love Him and keep His commandments. I'm not saying it's easy. And I don't pretend to understand what some people have gone through. I grew up in a loving home with loving parents. It breaks my heart to see kids go through the hardships that they have to go through. Whether it be physically abusive Emotionally abusive, sexually abusive, whether it be just poverty-ridden hardships, whatever it is, I haven't experienced that. And I don't pretend to understand it. But I know that God doesn't overlook sin. No matter who we blame, no matter who we pass it off on, even if they're willing to take the blame, it doesn't matter. You are responsible for you. And I'll tell you, society doesn't teach us that anymore. I mean, just, just Google crazy lawsuits. I mean, you'll find some of the silliest things. People who clearly were at fault made money off of a company because they blamed it on the company when they were the ones doing the stupidity. 
Society will say you can get away with murder. Literally. <laughs> you can get away with anything. It's not your fault. It's not your fault at all. It's a, it's a result of, of, of other things. Christians have been well known to blame television <laughs> for actions. And I 100% agree that there are things that influence our, 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 our minds, the things that we watch, the things that we listen to, uh, the things that we do, it influences. I don't pretend, you know, I remember back when I was a kid, pastors preaching against uh, the professional wrestling because uh, it was so violent and it's going to make your kids violent and all that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> okay, maybe. But if you look at, it's true, you look at the video games that, they, that are out there, you look at the TV, the, episodes, the shows, the movies, all that kind of stuff. There are things today that are incredibly gruesome and violent. And you can't say that it doesn't affect minds. It does. But God doesn't have someone stand before Him and He says, well, don't worry, it's not your fault, it's that TV program's fault. It's not your fault, your parents let you do this. No, if you sin, you're responsible for it. Plain and simple. There's just nothing else about it. Pilate had the ability, he had the authority to say, no, Jesus isn't going to the cross. He says, again, multiple times, he's done nothing wrong. He had the authority to say, we're not going to do it. Now, he was pressured. He was pushed. He was probably threatened. All that kind of things. And he made a decision that he thought was best for himself. The reality is, is no matter what you say, no matter what you do, if you're a sinner, you're guilty. We'll have parents who will say, I, I don't agree with your decision, but it's what you want, so I'm going to allow it. And whatever comes of it's on you. It's not how it works. We'll have the same thing happen with spouses. Well, I don't agree. And I think it's bad. And I don't think we should do this, but it's what you want, so we're going to do it. Now listen, there is a, that's a whole other sermon on wives to husbands and the responsibility that they are given by God to be submissive and to follow. But we make up the excuse, what's well, not my fault. I said I didn't agree. But we do the same thing that Pilate does. See you to it. No, this is wicked. This is wrong. We shouldn't do this. And I know that we shouldn't do this. But I wash my hands of it and you're taking the blame for it. See you to it. We have the responsibility as Christians to do right by God. And when we don't, And we make the excuse and we pass the blame. We're just like Pilate, willfully ignorant. Thankfully, there's a third sinner. We don't have to be one of these two. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 30, uh, not chapter 39, verse number 39. Oh, great, I didn't put the chapter in here. This is a good day for the pastor. Uh, towards the end of Luke, let's get there. Uh, let's see here. Luke 23. Luke 23 and in verse 39, Christ is hanging on the cross. 
And he has two people there as well, one on each side, hanging on crosses also. Verse 39 says, And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. It's interesting when you watch someone who knows they've done wrong admit they've done wrong. Don't pass the blame. They don't turn their head. They don't boldly, proudly proclaim their wickedness. But they understand the shame in it. And of these two criminals that hang beside Christ, and the one was trying to get out of it, right? If you're Christ, save yourself and save us also. He's still trying to get away. I I can applaud him for that, I suppose. But the other criminal, such an intriguing conversation, three men hanging on a cross. He says, what are you doing? Paraphrasing. What are you doing? You and I, we deserve to be here. But this man... He's done nothing wrong. It's the same thing Pilate said. This man's done nothing wrong. Pilate said, see to it. This man said, I know who you are. I know I deserve to be here, and I know you don't deserve to be here. Would you please remember me? I know I'm wicked. I know I deserve to be on this cross. Please remember me. And Christ said, yes. He said, just give it a couple minutes. Today you're going to be with me in paradise. The third sinner is what I like to call the wonderfully forgiven. He says, God is greater than I. And God has the authority to get me to heaven. I'm in the wrong And he has done nothing wrong. So many times we try to get out of our sin versus just being forgiven. We make an excuse for our sin versus just saying, I'm wrong. I'm a husband. I understand this. In an argument trying to prove you're right, even though you know you're wrong. You can't do that with God. So many times we say that we try to wash our hands of our sin, we try to do it on our own. It doesn't work. I can't wash my own sin off. 
You ever gotten paint on your hands and you don't have the right supplies and you're trying to wash the paint off your hands and it just won't come off? Or you got chocolate on your face when you're not supposed to be eating chocolate and you try to rub it off but it just won't come off? I'm trying to find something that will relate to all of us, I don't know. Pilate says, well, I'll wash my hands of this. And God says, your hands are still dirty. The criminal on the cross says, will you wash me of this? And Christ said, yeah, yeah, I will. So much of Christ on this, on this earth was cleaning dirty things. Gives us the great example of washing his disciples' feet. We see him washing sickness away from people, physical ailments, blindness, deafness, paralysis. We see him with the man who the four people lowered him through the roof, could not walk. And Christ's response is to forgive his sins. Why is that? that's what he needed he also allowed him to walk again but you see we as sinners we come to this point where we are uh, I don't think that we are today blatantly uh, unrepentant but I think we're oftentimes willfully ignorant we say well I'm sure God doesn't care that much about this it's just a little thing I'll just do right from here on out I'll wash my hands of that sin and, and I won't be responsible for that anymore. We'll blame someone else for what we do. What this criminal, hanging on the cross, understood that Barabbas should have been there because he deserved to be there, but Jesus, there was no reason for him to be hanging on that cross. He doesn't ask for God to save his life and take him off the cross. He says, I deserve to die. Will you remember me? And God says, yeah. There's no reason for a Christian to not live the life of the wonderfully forgiven sinner. The Bible says that if thou shalt confess thy sin, in a book written to Christians, if thou shalt confess thy sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you confess. That's what the man on the cross did. He tells the other guy on the cross too. He says, we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. This confession. I'm a sinner. And after we're saved, we're still going to sin. Doesn't make it okay, by the way. And I know I've said that before, but I'll say it again. It doesn't make it okay. It is going to happen. So what do we do? Do we overlook it? Do we blame someone else? Do we blame circumstances? Do we say, well, I don't have to take the fall for this one. This one's not my fault. Or do we look to the cross in the middle and I say 
I'm here for the right reasons. I belong here. And God, forgive me. When we do that, God says yes every time. I, I cannot comprehend why. Why, when I go to God on a nearly daily basis, God, forgive me. And He says yes. Why? I disappoint them over and over again. And when someone disappoints me over and over again, I finally get fed up with it and say, no, you're not changing. No, you're just going to do it again. No, you don't mean that. For, you don't mean that. God never does that to me. And God says, if you'll confess, I'll forgive. And I can live the life of a wonderfully forgiven sinner. I am a sinner, right? The Bible tells us there's none righteous, no, not one. I'm a sinner. And thankfully, God sees me as pure because of what Jesus Christ did for me. What kind of sinner am I? Am I the openly unrepentant? Am I the willfully ignorant or am I the wonderfully forgiven? Hopefully, you and I today are the wonderfully forgiven. But if you're not, you can be. With just one simple request of God. God, I deserve what I get. But will you forgive me? God, I'm guilty. Will you forgive me? And the wonderful thing is, is he says yes. And that's a great hope that we hold on to and a, a way that we can live our lives victoriously as opposed to the defeated. God help us. <clears throat> We're a room of sinners today. Some think they're worse than other people. Some think they're better than other people. But the result ultimately is, in your eyes, we're the same. And God, I pray that you'd help us to live a life that's not living one in open sin. And Lord, not living one that is ignoring sin. But God, we live a life that is full of repentant mindset, heart, action, Lord, so that we can live a wonderfully forgiven life on a day-by-day -day basis. Lord, I pray that if we have sin in our lives today that is habitual, that is regular, God, I pray that today you would have us cast it at your feet and that you'd give victory. God, I pray that you would help us to, uh, maybe we have some that blame other people for their own actions. God, today you would help us to see that the blame is on us. Lord, that we'd cast it at your feet and that you'd forgive us. God, if there is anyone here that is blatantly, openly sinful, and I don't know that there is, I don't think there is, but Lord, I pray that today you'd convict their heart and God, that you'd make a change in their life. Lord, you're the only one that can give us true forgiveness. And you offer it to us every second of every day. So help us. 
Help us to live a victorious life, a forgiven life, and follow you more closely, I pray. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed for today, 97 through 104, we're going to look at two sources uh, here this afternoon. Let's read, it says, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. This is not part of our thing today, but if you, for me, it's right, right next to it on the page in Psalm 113. It says, I hate vain thoughts, but thy law do I love, which goes right in with, oh, how I love thy law. We'll get to that in two weeks. But anyways, um, though through, thou through thy commandments hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. I have, none under, I have more understanding than all of my teachers, for my testimonies, excuse me, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. I refrain my feet from every evil way, that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore... I hate every false way. Lord, I pray that you'd help us this afternoon as we take a few minutes to look at these verses. And I pray that we'd be encouraged by them. I pray that we can claim them uh, to have the same mindset here that was had by the psalmist as well. And uh, Lord, may it challenge us just to do better in the days ahead, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look here again, like I said, at two sources. The first one is a source of learning. Of course, Psalm 119 is all about Scripture. It's about God's Word, and it is a source of learning for us. In verse 97, we see here a desire to learn. He says, Oh, how I love thy law. Uh, it is my meditation all the day. It's a, it's a conscious decision. God's Word and the idea of loving God's Word, following God's Word, and learning from God's Word is, comes from a desire to learn. In uh, college, they always told us, if you sit in, near the front, you'll learn more. Um, because if you sit in the back, you're going to be distracted and all, you got everybody else in front of you and all that kind of stuff going on or whatever it may be. You'll be able to hear better, you'll be able to see better, you'll be able to learn better if you sit in the front. And so those that desired to learn or desired to be teacher's pet sat at the front. And then the rest of us <laughs> sat at the back. Um, but uh, to show a desire to learn will, uh, will lead towards more learning in most cases. If you truly want to learn from God's Word, you will learn a whole lot more than if you don't desire to learn from God's Word. You can read God's Word without desiring to learn God's Word. You can uh, uh, see God's Word without a desire to learn God's Word. You can hear God's Word without a desire to learn God's Word. But if you have a desire to learn, it's going to happen. Most of the Bible is simple to understand. We live in America, which speaks the English language. We use the King James Version of the Bible, which uses some weird English words here and there. And there will be people who will say, I just can't understand it because of the language it uses. Um, and in some areas that's fair to some degree, although it does not take long to do a little bit of research to understand it. But... Nonetheless, I come back to my main point of most of the Bible is simple to learn. It is not hard. The, 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 the basics, uh, and even, even further than that, is very simple for someone to learn. 
So if you're not learning from God's Word, it's not because it's too hard. Um, it's not because, uh, it's, it's because of you. And I don't, I'm not trying to be mean, but that's the, the truth. If you're not learning, it's because of you. Uh, do you have a desire to learn? Are you asking God to teach you? Um, are you faithful in your reading and in your studying? It's, it's on you. And uh, you can learn and you can understand uh, if you are desiring to do so. God's Word not only uh, uh, is a source of learning, but here it also understand that it makes you wiser. makes you wiser than the strategists, strategists, strategists of the world. It makes you wiser than the scholars of the world. And it makes you wiser than experience can teach you as well. Now we can do things, uh, and, and obviously experience is a good teacher, um, for sure. And there are people who are way smarter than me that know more than me, uh, of course, as well. And, uh, but at the end of the day, the Bible is what makes us wiser. In verse 98, it says, Though through, Thou through Thy commandments hast made me wiser. He says, Then mine enemies, they were there ever with me. His enemies are strategizing to uh, uh, overcome him. And the Bible makes him wiser. He says in verse 99, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. He says, then the, the, the studious ones. And you see this all throughout the New Testament especially, right? Where you've got the, 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 the teachers, the studiers of Scripture, and yet when Jesus is right in front of them, teaching them, talking to them, they say, no, that's not true. God's Word makes you wiser than the scholars. I'm not saying that education is not important. I'm not saying that you shouldn't study to, to gain more education, any of those kinds of things. But we have to understand that the Bible is what can teach us more so than any person. Why? Because it's God's Word. It's God teaching us. And so the Bible can make you wiser than the scholars. And then he says in verse 100, I understand more than the ancients. Because I keep thy precepts. Uh, generation to generation passes down um, helpful tips. Passes down things that they saw and heard and experienced to try to teach and moving forward. But God's word is better than experience. The, the, the mindset that uh, someone who has been there, done that, uh, can, can teach me things is wise. Uh, the Bible says that a multitude of counselors is a good thing. Uh, it's wise to talk to people who've been there and done that. But you have to understand the Bible is wiser. I always think back to an instance early on as a pastor, and I had a wise man give me advice. And I think it was the worst advice I've ever received in my life. And I just remember thinking, and that, that may be a broad statement, but nonetheless, uh, I just remember thinking, I respect this man, I appreciate this man, I love this man, I am not taking that advice. And the, the ultimate result is the Bible's wiser. And so you have to remember that I, I'm not against seeking counsel, I'm not a, uh, against seeking advice. I think the older should teach the younger. I, I think there's, there's a great wisdom in that. Uh, What's well, biblical, but... The Bible itself is going to do more for you than someone else's experience. 
I, I encourage people who go through different things in life that I've never been through. And I, one of the things I tell them oftentimes is this is something that you can help somebody else with. You're going through something that I've never experienced. It's not to mean that I can't help people who've gone through it, but now you can relate. There's something there that you can really help with, especially if they made it through adversity. And you can say, boy, that's something that God may use in your life to really help you uh, help someone else that goes through the same struggle that you went through. But again, it's not that experience that helps. It's God's word, God's word that helps. And so if we focus on that and understand this is where my source of learning is, I can be wiser than these things. But remember, it always comes back to this, right? Verse 98, I'm wiser than mine enemies, uh, for they are ever with me. Verse number 99, I understand more than the teachers because they testimonies, they word, or my meditation, it's what's on my mind. And verse 100, uh, I understand more than the ancients. Why? Because I keep thy precepts. It's all coming back to Scripture. It's not I'm smarter, it's God's Word made me wiser. And because I'm reading, because I'm studying, because I'm obeying God's Word, it makes me wiser as well. If you read through 1 Samuel 18, there are three different occasions where David, it's talked about David being wise. Um, he's given commands over the armies, uh, by Saul, and it says that David behaved himself wisely. Then uh, later in the, the chapter, we read about David escaping Saul's attempts to kill him with the javelins, and eventually Saul sends him out of his court. And, uh, and as he does so, the Bible says that David behaved himself wisely in all things. And then the third instance is where uh, David marries Saul's daughter, Michael, and Saul, uh, Michael sided with David over her dad, Saul, and that caused more rift between Saul and David. And, uh, and the Bible says that uh, Saul became David's in enemy continually, but David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. How did David behave himself more wisely in these situations? It's because he obeyed God. It's because he did what God wanted him to do. And where everybody else were following a king or following orders or following whatever, David was following God. And the Bible says the result of that was David was wiser than everyone else. And, and it's the same is true for us. If we'll just follow God's word, we'll come out wiser than the, things, uh, than the other things around us. So the Bible is a source of learning. And then, uh, secondly, the Bible is a source of sanctification. Um, sanctification is an important part of the life uh, after salvation and and, uh, and again, it's, it's where I think where God really uses us in our lives as we are sanctified, set apart, um, different. And uh, we see a couple things. Verse 101, we see separation. I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. He got away from the things that were going to cause him to fall. Yeah, it's so simple, yet we oftentimes don't do the same thing. He got away from it. Anything that was going to cause him to fall, he got away from so that he could still follow God's word. 102, we see that he was steadfast. He says, I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. He says, I got away from the evil way, but I have not departed from your judgments. I have, I have stayed steadfast in what you've told me to do. I have stayed obedient in what you've told me to do because you're the one that's taught me to do it, so I've stuck with it. In 103, we see that he is therefore satisfied. He says, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. He says, It's worth it. I'm happy. I'm glad I did. 
I'm glad I stuck with it. I'm glad I obeyed. It, it's worth it. Uh, he's still going through trials, still going through adversity, still going through issues. But he says, your words, they're sweet. It's what I need. Satisfies me. And then 104 is purity. He says, through thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore, as a result of, I hate every false way. I think sometimes the issue that we have with sin is we don't hate it. And the reason we don't hate it is because we're not faithful in God's word. And he says, as a result of my uh, uh, understanding, through thy precepts is how I get thy understanding. And as a result of that, I hate every false way. And that's the one thing I, I run across probably the most is with this uh, people who don't have victory, and that would be their claim, I don't have victory over this sin, it's because they don't hate it. The Bible says that Moses chose uh, to go with the children of Israel, to go into the wilderness versus enjoying sin for a season. Moses had to make the decision that he was going to hate sin so that he could follow God. Now, by following God, it will cause you to hate sin. <laughs> so, so that's where I just suggest starting is following God. But nonetheless, we still have to at some point come to that, that understanding, that realization that I hate every evil way. I, I'm not going to seek it. I'm not going to strive for it. I'm not going to stay close to it. I'm not going to put myself in a situation where I'm tempted by it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to avoid it, as he says there in 101. But he says it's the result of thy precepts. And so that's where it always comes back to, right? God's word. It's, it's, it's something that you have to choose. It's something that you have to make time for. It's something you have to plan in your day to read and learn from God's word. Not just read, but learn from God's word. And as you do it, you'll, you'll grow further and further and further away from the desires of the world. And it'll draw you closer and closer and closer to God. And that will all bring together some security and help and the tools that you need, the weapons that you need, the protection that you need so that you can live a life where you can truly stand and say, I hate every false way. And again, I know it's two weeks away, but 113, I hate vain thoughts. But God, I sure do love thy word. It says, but thy law do I love. And we've got to find a love for God and God's word and a hatred for sin and the evil things in this life. And when we do, we will be like the psalmist here in 103 and understand that it brings satisfaction. How sweet are thy words unto my taste. Yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Uh, next week, we're looking at the verse that uh, ultimately brought us the name of our church and uh, looking forward to looking at the lamp and the guidance that God's Word brings. God, thank you for your Word, and I pray that you'd help us to love it more, and I pray that you'd help us to focus on it more. And uh, God, would you help us draw us um, nearer to you? And we know that as we go near to you, you are near to us. And Lord, I pray that you would help us this week to focus our minds as the psalmist says, meditate on your word and may our thoughts be continually on you and the things that you've said to teach us, to grow us, to make us wiser. And God, may we not be foolish this week. So help us, I do pray. And Lord, we sure thank you for the good day you've given us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.